0: Tech talk, talk, With Jess Kelly. This is News Talk.
1: Hello and welcome to part one of a very special report on how Ireland tackles cybercrime. Coming up over the next hour, I'll meet with the heads of the two bodies responsible for fighting cyber attacks and investigating who or what is behind them. As ever, if you want to get in touch, you can email me, techtalk at newstalk.com. It's
2: eight o'clock, good morning. The HSE has shut down its entire IT system after a major cyber attack. The vaccine programme isn't affected, but the Rotunda hospital
1: That was how the country found out that the HSE had been targeted by a ransomware attack on May 14th, 2021. This attack caused severe disruption to the running of Ireland's health service. It took months for services to return to normal, and the cost of this attack currently stands at 100 million euro. That figure could run as high as 670 million. While that was the biggest attack of its nature in this country to date, there are attacks of varying severity happening every single day. As October is cybersecurity month, I went out to meet with the teams dealing with this very much on the digital front lines. In part two, we'll hear from the individuals who worked on the HSE ransomware attack, phishing scams and other digital investigations. But we're going to start outside the building where emergency meetings are held when an issue of national importance arises.
3: Hi, my name is Joseph Stevens, and I'm the head of engagement for the National Cyber Security Centre. Right now we're standing outside the National Emergency Coordination Centre, which is the government's, uh, I suppose, control centre for for national emergencies. Uh, And that could be anything from a storm to a major accident, uh, but also a uh, cyber crisis. So that's why I thought it'd be a good idea to, to chat with you and the team here today. The facility is really uh, multi-purpose, so it can be used for any type of crisis, including a cyber crisis. And we're gonna take you behind the scenes to show you what happens in the background and how those things are managed, uh, and also meet the team and talk about cybersecurity generally.
1: So when we're talking about cyber crime, is that anything from, you know, a phishing attempt right through to something like the ransomware attack on the HSE.
3: It can range from anything down to uh, a fraud against an individual person, a scam, right up to the most serious cyber attacks uh, against organizations. Um, and some, we, we classify cyber crime generally as, as people who are kind of motivated by financial gain uh, in the same way you would in, in in the real world. But also, you know, you have other types of attackers, nation states that conduct cyber attacks for different purposes. They might be looking to steal data, conduct espionage, etc.
1: One of the terms that a lot of people heard uh, around the time of the HSC attack was ransomware. How does ransomware differ to a cyber attack?
3: What ransomware is, is basically a type of malware that locks up all your computer systems, prevents you from getting access to your computer systems through encryption. It basically scrambles the data so it's unusable. And what the the attackers will do is they'll issue you with a ransom note saying, unless you pay me a certain amount of money, we're not going to give you a key which will allow you unscramble that data. And in addition to that, there's also uh, extra pressure, extra ransom they can put on, whereby they can say, in addition to that, providing the key, we also have your data, we've stolen it, and we're going to release that for everybody to see, unless you pay us an additional amount of money. So there's a sort of double extortion going on.
1: The attack on the HSE was obviously a significant one. It dominated headlines here in Ireland and got picked up, obviously, around the world. Um, How common are attacks of that nature
3: most attacks don't make the headlines obviously but but frauds are happening every day of the week and you know it's, it's quite difficult to get a grasp on the scale of the problem nobody has access to all of the data we're sort of all peering in getting different views on it but there's industry reporting out there for instance you know microsoft have estimated that 70 percent of large Irish companies have been subject to some kind of cyber attack the average cost of a cyber attack uh, is estimated by ibm to be 4.5 million but obviously we've seen with the HSC attack it can be far far greater. The current estimate of that attack is 100 million and could cost up to 670 million to recover from. Obviously, we're talking absolutely colossal figures here, and it's, it's easy to get lost in the statistics. But if you take it down to the individual level, the, the latest statistics we would have uh, from the Central Statistics Office is that 15% of Irish people ha- have been subject to some kind of phishing attack. Now, those stats are from 2019. We've seen an explosion of of phishing and uh, scams since the pandemic, since so many people have moved online and our lives have become so digitised.
1: So we're going to head inside uh, this building now. You have the lanyard and the security card and all the bits to get us through the doors. Uh, So we'll head in and meet the team. So, Joseph we're inside the room that you mentioned a lot of people will know this from uh, seeing it on the news seeing screenshots on Twitter of uh, politicians and spokespeople a- addressing the public from this room and um, tell me a little bit more about this space
3: you know it looks like a standard room it's a, a government Briefing office, you know, you have got of Ireland branding and podiums and so on, and then there's a space for the press here to sit and ask questions. But what's really important is what's happening behind the scenes, and, and we'll go there in a moment. But just to talk about this room a little bit, you know, we have, if you look up at the ceilings, you can see that there's cameras, uh, and they're hooked up to live stream immediately. So th- this room is set up to be used immediately in the event of an emergency so if there's some kind of crisis this can be used straight away there's microphones in the ceilings there's microphones on the podium we're set up to record and live stream that's kind of the purpose of this facility and as i said this is what most people see uh, but maybe we'll take a walk around and i can show you about what's happening in the kind of in the background
1: yeah awesome let's go
3: So. Where we are now, I suppose, is, is the nerve centre of, of, of where a crisis is managed. So we've got a, a huge uh, square table set up uh, with space in the middle for screens. There's screens all around the walls. There's blackboards. Uh, uh, there's cameras. Uh, it's, it's a really high tech facility. Uh, what, what, you, what you can sit around this table is, is around uh, 35 people. It's set up as it would be for uh, a national emergency coordination group meeting. Uh, and what the national coordination group is, is it's, it's the, the strategic level group in government that coordinates during uh, uh, emergencies. And that can be, as I said, any type of emergency. And depending on the type of emergency will, it will determine who's sitting in these seats. In terms of, of a cyber emergency, who you would probably have up there chairing is our director, uh, Richard Brown, and he would be making sure that all of the various arms of the state, uh, such as ourselves and the National Cyber Security Centre, the Garda National Cybercrime Bureau, the Defence Forces, Uh, and all of the various different departments and agencies and private uh, cybersecurity contractors are taking the actions that are needed at a national level to resolve the cyber crisis.
1: In the instance of a, a digital emergency or a cyber emergency, obviously cybersecurity is of the utmost importance. So if everybody is in this room and if some people are remote, how important is the protection of what goes on in those calls and ensuring that someone who's infiltrated a system such as you know when the hse attack happened the at hse.ie emails didn't work for example so how do you get around that in that instance
3: that that's a really good point Uh, and the the security of these systems is paramount these systems need to be operational during an emergency and particularly uh, a cyber emergency and you know there's a huge amount of resiliency built into this uh, facility I won't go into all of the details for obvious reasons, but you know this is connected to its own power substation. Uh, it also has generators for backup power. There's also battery power. The connectivity here, there's there's multiple ways the connectivity come into this this building, not just through one link and not just through one type of connectivity. So you're not talking about just wires. There's also uh, microwave radio, etc. So this is designed to be resilient in the event of of, of an emergency, and particularly a, a digital emergency. Uh, I've just stepped out of the the central uh, coordination room uh, to a room off to the left and you can see there's a huge room here a a big table similar type of video facilities and and screens on the wall and these breakout rooms are used as you can imagine the big decisions are taken on the big table but there's lots of stuff happening in the background you might want people to go and discuss one aspect of the emergency whilst uh, you know other groups are doing other things
1: Where does the book stop and if there is a disagreement or if there is different points of view does it does one person have the final say in terms of taking the lead on the strategy for the country
3: so I suppose it's important to remember that each government department each organization they're responsible for their own actions and uh, the book stops all over the place I guess depending on what aspect of the, the emergency we're talking about and the role of the NECG the emergency coordination group is coordination it's to make sure that the state is acting in a coordinated fashion So we're we're in another room here now, and this is essentially you know it would be the sort of headquarters I guess for for either the chair of the NECG or perhaps a minister might come down here. And uh, what you can see obviously is there's a you know their desk, uh, a large table. But what you'll notice is there's a number of screens on the wall here, and and this is so that they can monitor the the, the ongoing emergency, and that could be monitoring what's happening inside in the, the Coordination Centre, in any of the breakout rooms, but also crucially in, in today's day and age, social media. So there are systems here to keep a, a check on what's happening on social media. And that's not in the same way that you or I would scroll through Twitter or, or LinkedIn. This is using technology to find out exactly what's happening and keep it abreast of what's happening on the ground. I, I've mentioned obviously that this room could be used by a minister and of, often government will want to come here to oversee what's happening. And there's actually a direct link between this building and government building there's a there's a tunnel where they can be brought uh, directly to to this facility to oversee uh, the cyber the cyber or any emergency
1: I walked from that big meeting room to one of the breakout spaces to meet with the man who leads Ireland's National Cyber Security Centre
2: Richard Brown director of National Cyber Security Centre uh, have three roles basically we uh, detect identify and stop cyber attacks in the state we manage national incident response processes the second one is we share information on threats, risks, hazards and, and issues arising in the cyber domain. Uh, and the last one is we work with entities across the state to build resilience through a, a range of different measures, including compliance measures, information, support, guidance, handholding, and a little bit of bullying.
1: So you mentioned there about the threats. Who or what is targeting Ireland and why?
2: So basically we, we generally describe there as being kind of three levels of threat. The first is, first one is usually lower level criminal script kiddie, act, hack, hacktivist type groups. These tend to be amateurish cr- uh, criminals who are engaged in relatively low level acts to try and extort money, to try and cause damage, to try and you know, get across a political position. The second level r- is largely large-scale cybercriminals. These are l- well organized to a varying degree, well-funded criminal actors who are engaged in a variety of different extortion and other types of activity to simply make money. Mm -hmm. And the last one is, is, and the most troubling of all in some ways, are the state actors, um, or those associated closely with states, nexus actors in different language. And those are generally involved in espionage and other types of activity.
1: I want to start with some of the low-level activity. So, you know, recently on News Talk Breakfast, we did a warning about phishing attempts because they're getting smarter, they're getting more frequent. Is that something that crosses your desk and are there trends and other spikes in terms of the calendar year where you know that these are going to be rife and does it cause an arched eyebrow or does somebody else deal with that
2: so for it, to answer the first question first yes it does cr- very much on our radar that kind of trend analysis and long-term understanding of what's happening is really important I think the first and most important thing on this is it's a global environment so what we see here is only going to be a subsection and it could change overnight because of a, glo- of a global or a regional trend we are an English-language country. We get the same fishes, the same lures, the same themes as the UK, as the US, as Canada, Australia, New Zealand. So we're very much plugged into that ecosystem as well in terms of what's happening. Um, in terms of what we do about it, well, like you'll have seen in the past, we do public information campaigns and releases about this. Um, but we also work with the industry. So sitting behind all of the user activity, all of the things individuals do, are the collective things that organisations, governments, vendors, firms... Operators do to try and protect their own infrastructure. There's a there's a large global cybersecurity industry, and there's an ecosystem involving that industry, vendors, people like us, who work together to try and ensure that systems remain secure against an ever evolving threat. That's a very large subject, but basically we're we're the national representative on a global effort dealing with all of these different types of cyber crime and cyber related activity.
1: Okay, so although it might just seem like an annoyance to me and my friends, it is something that's being looked at as a potential threat because it is sort of a gateway into wider cyber attacks. And I think people knowing not to click on links in those instances may inform them not to click on a dodgy attachment in a work setting, if you know what I mean.
2: Absolutely. But I think it, it's, this is beyond the mere annoyance. Phishing remains the single largest way of entry for any kind of threat actor. So nation state actors use phishing in exactly the same way as other actors do. So you're right, there is an atmospheric cyber hygiene question. I hate the term, but it's it's the term that's used um, to try and ensure that people understand the dangers associated with this. But phishing and those basic 20, 30 year old um, routes remain extremely valid because Mm -hmm. they work. Um, so, the education piece, like European Cybersecurity Month, remains important, not just for individuals at home with their own personal information, but in a professional context as well, no matter where you work.
1: Phishing is often dismissed as an annoyance, but the reason it's still so prevalent is because it works. The basic tips of pause, verify, and delete are your best course of action here. In relation to ransomware attacks, however, I was curious to find out if the motive is always money, or does disruption serve as a motivator for those bad actors who carry them out?
2: That's a really good question. So ransomware is very old. It's at least 20 years old, if not more. And what we've seen in the last couple of years is the emergence of something known as human-operated ransomware. So previously it would just have been a drop-and-go. You click on a link, it downloads a piece of uh, software which encrypts what it can on your own drive or on your own whatever you have access to or right access to. What's happened in the last couple of years is that we've seen um, globally the emergence of these well-organized actor groups who do at least three if not four things. They will steal your data. They will encrypt your data. They will use the stolen data as a means of leverage to extort ransom from you. But they will also then either publish online or sell some of your data to other criminal actors or just publish it for general release just because they can. And lastly, you'll find there's a a fourth stream to this which is that that ransomware operators will sometimes take some of the information they've they've stolen and use that to extract directly from individuals on the basis of the data that they now have. So this is a much larger issue than it was because actors have gotten much more sophisticated and much more organised and it remains an issue. The question, why do they do it? For the very most part, this is just about money. There's no question about that. Um, however, there's, there's two other areas where it can, it can get slightly fuzzy around the edges. One of them is that, in some cases, the, uh, the countries in which these operators work and live um, will take payment by means of information that they've stolen. So the, there is a quid pro quo, if you like, to their home government. They, they run back to their local contact and hand over whatever they might have. The second thing, and this is always extremely difficult to prove, But there can be situations where ransomware operators act as a proxy for government to cause disruption, to undermine democracies, to pull at the fabric of of government and the fabric of people's accepted reality and it's part of a generalized kind of hybrid threat in that environment.
1: How important is it to your work and the work that your team does to understand the why when an attack happens? Is it a case of identify, kill it or is it identify, kill it and find out what they were after so you can prevent it from happening again?
2: It's very much the latter Um, and it's the latter up to the strategic level. So what we we tend to describe it as we take an incident from the ones and zeros to the minister's or Taoiseach's desk. So we go from the what is it? How do we stop it? How do we ensure it doesn't happen again? What does it mean? And then what does it mean strategically? So we take this in, in a full spectrum incident response process and look at all of the ramifications of it. However. That's just one incident. We deal with hundreds of incidents every year. And that gives us not just local themes, local, a local understanding of what's happening here. It, we can also contextualise that in the, in the sense that we see everything else as well mm-hmm. that's published or from, or from peers around the world. And we can then say where we sit in this kind of global ecosystem and what that means for us politically, geopolitically, strategically. It's all part of a much more comprehensive intelligence gathering picture.
1: Can you rank where the biggest cyber threats are coming from against Ireland? Are they internal? Are they European? Are they Russian? You know, is it possible to rank them? Uh,
2: it's, it's difficult to say in the short term because it's also so volatile and it can change quite quickly. Mm. Um, I think different actors pose different levels and different types of threats. We have very little by way of domestic cybercrime. We have some, obviously, um, but most of it is, is fraud and is more a matter for the Guardi. It. It's cyber enabled crime rather than pure cybercrime per se. Um, at a European level, we still have ongoing um, campaigns run by criminal actors from within the European Union, but they're ongoing and relatively low level. The geopolitical situation is much more complex. Um, and the nature of the the risk can change very very quickly, um, so we have a very good understanding as to what's happening geopolitically, what different actors are doing. Um, it's safe to say that China, Russia, Iran, North Korea all have substantial cyber capability, and they haven't been shy about deploying that around the world. They pose different levels and diff- different types of threats.
1: How much collaboration is there between your team and international counterparts? particularly in the wake of the HSE, were there learnings that were shared with those other bodies?
2: So we work extremely closely with, cu- with counterparts around the world, particularly within the European Union. Um, in the aftermath of the HSE incident, there's some commentary that we got assistance from the European Union. We didn't. We engaged with a number of European countries who would seen this same group operate at length in their own countries and had dealt with incidents. Some countries have teams des- designated just dealing with this actor group because they're so prolific. Um, so we had some assistance with the decryptor, trying to validate, we had to make sure that the decryptor would work before we started deploying it. But that was essentially the, the sum total of it. However, we work extremely closely across the European Union through formal structures like the Cert network and other networks, um, internationally through groups like the NATO Centre of Excellence and bilateral cooperation we have with you know countries like the US, the UK, Australia, New Zealand and so on. This is, like I said at the outset, a global effort. Mm-hmm. No one country can do this by themselves because the actors are international they're global they an, an actor group engaged in ransomware or any other type of activity can hit here one day they can hit south america the following day and asia the day after mm-hmm. and that's quite often what they do they bounce around the world so we have to have a global response to these threats and we're very much part of that process
1: i spoke to you on tech talk last year um, and we predominantly spoke about the hsc attack and i will move off in a second but i'm just wondering and touch wood it doesn't happen but if another attack like that was to happen in the morning what would be done differently as a result of what we all went through last time we
2: Okay, so first of all, the, it, it is not impossible that we'd have a similar incident again. The nature of these things are that, that the bad guys are always trying and, and they, they try every day to, to, to do some big game hunting, as they would put it. Um, What would happen differently at our level? Well, first of all, the NCSC is far better resourced. Um, We also have a new National Cyber Emergency Plan built on the learnings of the HSC incident response process. The response process that we conducted is regarded by our peers as an example of how to do it, um, particularly in terms of the public communications and the the larger response, political response around it. Um, However, in reality, if you're in a situation where a large data set and a large network has been taken down by an advanced ransomware group, there's very little you can actually do. It's too late. So for us, the focus is on both improving our ability to respond. It's really important, but also ins- ensuring that this doesn't happen again by making sure people understand what they need to do. Mm-hmm. If I were to pick out one one piece of recent reporting on the HSC incident, it's that the incident has uh, the reporting has pointed out that the technological debt that the HSC owe, that you know they're they they are about six hundred plus million euro behind the curve. So to harden to make ready their systems, um, they need to spend approximately that amount. Now, I haven't looked at it personally, but that's what's been reported. Um, that's known as a technological debt. That's what they owe. This would be the case regardless of whether or not they'd been an incident. HC is a very large IT system, the biggest in the state, very complex, very difficult to work with. But it's not beyond the realms of possibility. So other large organisations might have you know, similar, maybe not to the same scale, levels of technological debt. And that's the real concern for us. This could happen again because entities may not be ready for it. Um, They may not see it when it does. They may not be able to respond in time. I mean, as everybody will be aware, the day before the HSC incident, the same actor group was active in a government department. That government department reported it to us, and we were able to stop it. So they didn't have a ransomware event. Now, the networks were down for cleaning and for safety, but they didn't have a ransomware event. It is possible to stop these guys. It is possible to turn them off. if you don't if you're not lucky and if you're not prepared you are going to get into very serious trouble very quickly
1: and if we look at the cost of that one attack like it's monumental so how do we fix it because that's a huge amount of money and we're obviously there's a lot going on in the world there's a lot of priorities we all know that but people missed out on hospital appointments babies couldn't be registered, like there was a whole load of human consequences as well as the service disruption in general. So how do we fix it?
2: So, I mean, first of all, that's the really important point. This is a human issue. These are services that people rely on in, today, in the day-to-day lives. You know, this is no longer just a weird IT problem in, in the basement. This is for, ev- for everybody. Um, I said this in front of the Committee earl- earlier on this year. It wasn't just patients. It was hospital staff. It was entire communities who were disrupted and affected by this. And that's what happens. How do you stop it? Well, First of all, globally, everybody's having exactly the same conversation. Um, from our perspective, there's three strategic things you need to do, and the 2019 National Cybersecurity Strategy calls these out. And the first one, you have to build resilience. And that basically means you have to ensure your IT systems are up to scratch. Some of that is, is incremental improvement, but some it's structural. You need to start stop running small, local, poorly defended IT systems and centralise in larger, better defended, better protected, better run organisations. In government, that's happening, and it's happening at pace. By the way, the second thing you need to do is to develop. You need to be able to develop your national capability tr- through research, through skills, through training, um, through R and D in specific cybersecurity uh, products to ensure that you're ready, not just now, but five and ten years into the future. Cyber is not just for today, it's Mm -hmm. forever. And in in all of that, there's a new and emerging piece, and we're heavily involved in this, around the certification of products. You go out and you buy a device, it doesn't matter what it is, and in some cases, you have some degree of certainty as to how secure it is. But the state, at a European level, is getting more and more involved in ensuring that it is secure by design, by default, and that's really important, not just for telecoms devices, which is where we're starting with, but also for connected devices and particularly IoT devices. You know, everything we think of IoT devices as being you know, routers or things like that, mm-hmm. but everything now that has an IP address is an IoT device. Cars, farm machinery. Your fridge. Cameras, your fridge, your toaster in some cases. No, not my toaster. <laughs> but so this, is a, this is a monumental issue. We've already seen very large botnets using IoT devices. The Mirai botnet was one of the largest botnets of all time, and it was a very simple piece of code running on IoT devices. These are real, systematic, global problems, not local anymore. Then the last thing we need to do is engage. And this this is really about diplomacy. It's about setting standards, about enforcing norms of behaviour online by governments and for governments as well. That's not easy. It involves lots of very patient, long-term diplomacy at the UN and other international organisations. It, it is contested. Other countries have different perspectives on how the world should work. Mm. But if the, the internet, which is this global resource, ultimately it's a global commons, is to remain secure, free, open, then we need to ensure that these norms are built, understood and respected. Now, otherwise, we'll we'll always be playing whack-a-mole.
1: You mentioned there about um, centralising systems to a certain extent. Is that not a bad thing, though? Because if everything is in the one system and the system gets infiltrated, then you have things like certain email addresses not working, certain websites not working, certain systems as a whole not working because it's all reliant on the one thing. Would it not be easier to have loads of mini steps rather than one big boulder?
2: That's a really good question. So generally speaking, what you're, suge- your, what you're suggesting is this utterly federated perspective where the, you, know, you have literally thousands of individual IT systems. First of all, it's very energy inefficient. Mm-hmm. But secondly, it is very, very difficult to, to really protect that large state of different systems out there because they'll all have vulnerabilities. They're all running different versions of Windows Exchange or whatever it might be. And it's difficult to patch one of those one of those systems. And if you've loads of smaller organisations like we do in this country, it's a given that some of them will remain unpatched and they will be extremely vulnerable. Not just a little bit vulnerable, extremely vulnerable. So centralising and, if you like, and concentrating IT does indeed concentrate IT risk, but it also means you're much more likely to have a proper functioning IT risk governance system sitting on top of that. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean you centralise everything into one pot. Mm-hmm. It means you have individual, federated, resilient IT instances. Cloud works exactly like that. Um, but having it all federated out in local offices, in, in small you know, business enterprises, in small government departments and agencies, that's a recipe for serious problems down the line.
1: We spoke there a second ago about um, collaboration with other uh, counterparts around the world. We're seeing, and if anybody opens a newspaper or listens to the news, um, there's a lot of activity going on in the political sphere, uh, particularly over in the UK. There's a lot of questions about policies and how they do things. I was reading something recently that they're going to find a new way of doing GDPR. The, The notion of countries going out and doing things on their own, does that impact what your team does? Like, how important is that collaboration? And if there are changes to policies or outlooks when it comes to cybersecurity, does that mess with that important collaboration that you've just talked about?
2: It doesn't to the extent that you might think at first pass. So, first of all, we have our single most important piece of legislation in cyber is the European NIS Directive, the Network and Information Security Directive. The UK transposed that at the same time we did. We worked very closely with them to ensure that the east-west and north-south infrastructure was properly captured in 2016-17. Um, but they've maintained that. They haven't diverged from that. And they have mutual self-interest, you know, leaving aside the, the political tensions in, in, in around all of this they have the same interest we do in preserving their own infrastructure and they are maintaining that regulatory regime in the same way we have. So I, would, I wouldn't I would suggest that there is that much of a, of a fragmentation of the, of the regulatory regime globally, if anything the, other, the reverse is the case. Now Europe is, important, this is really important, taking a very firm stand on a couple of different things which is relatively unique. So the IoT device piece, the certification piece in Europe is pushing in a different direction. That's difficult and challenging for loads of different reasons but there are valid, valid, arg- sorry, valid arguments behind all of that. Um, whether that leads in the long term to a fragmentation, I'm not sure. In, pa- in the past, where Europe has led, others have tended to follow. Um, the NIS directive was, was first and best in class in 2013 when originally published. Lots of individual US states are now moving along in a similar direction. And it, indeed, there's been several executive orders from the President and the US that also moves in a similar direction. Um, my experience of, of working with US officials is that they might be late, but they will get it right and we, have, we stand to learn from what they do as well, which is really important. Mm.
1: On a national level, and I don't mean this in any disrespect to anybody, but when you're briefing ministers, TDs, officials, all that sort of jazz, do you feel that there is the understanding of the severity of the issue?
2: Absolutely, yes. And even before the HSC incident, this was well understood. I mean, we talk about the HSC incident as if it was something dramatic and new. There's been ransomware instances happening globally for more than 20 years. Um, Ours, was unusual because of its scale, um, and it's because we were quite open as to what was happening. But you you look globally, this happens all the time. Mm -hmm. So people were very much aware of it across government. I think what what the HSC incident has has shown, really, is how systematic and large-scale the implications can be. That was a really interesting one for everybody here. Has it changed the tenor of the conversation? Not really, because we're already in this space. I've been scaring people about this for 10 years, um, and people are well aware of what's happening.
1: Mm. Uh, Earlier in the year, I was out with the Defence Forces, and they were doing uh, a cyber training event. how frequent do these training type things go on and and does your team constantly go through training to identify react and respond to attacks of different natures
2: all the time um so in terms of individual training, we most of our training is international. So we work with partner agencies and colleagues around the world, and we also work with international training companies for various different types of contracts. Um, but we do exercises very regularly, nationally and internationally, to ensure that what we do and how we do it remains up to scratch. Some of those are tabletop geopolitical-type exercises. Some more are technical with NATO and other colleagues. So our be- we're l- doing this live all the time. We're in a live fire environment all the time. But we do step back regularly to exercise both our national strategic planning and our local, if you like, tactical responses to different incidences. Um, it's This is an ongoing, every three or four weeks we have an exercise type situation. Mm-hmm. I have one coming up. Um, I've done several already this year at the European level. I have one more coming up later on in the year. We have three more within the NCSC nationally coming up before the end of the year, one of them run by us. Um, so this is happening all the time.
1: We're going to meet members of Richard's team in part two of this series, but given the high stakes and the high skills that are required, I asked him about the types of people who work for the National Cyber Security Centre.
2: So we have three directorates within the NCSC. We have an operations directorate, which is the largest, and that does instant response. It does threat intelligence, risk ops. It has a, a range of different technical functions, including leading and managing the day-to-day national instant response process. The second one is the, is the resilience directorate, and Joe's team, the engagement team, sits under that. That covers engagement. It covers our PMO, our project management office. It covers our uh, certification team. It covers our um, compliance team. So, and our capability development team, which is a new team. And the last team is, is technology. That's a separate director, our CTO team. So, each of these teams are quite different. But we look for a basic skill set for everybody. We're looking for people with a high level of cyber security or organisational design capability who can engage with very complex, difficult issues at a technical level and then escalate them them up the the strategic chain. Some of this is quite difficult to understand for people who are pure IT Mm -hmm. or pure security or something else. We look for people who can do a bit of all of that. um, And obviously we have specialities within that as well. A lot of the people we employ have come from the Defence Forces originally, quite a few, and then increasingly we're bringing people in from private sector and from across the civil service with 10 or 15 years of experience doing cyber security. I mean it's worth keeping in mind we have 7,000 more than 7,000 people working in cyber security in Ireland and we have some of we're home to some of the largest global cyber security firms so we have access not just to a very large amount of information intelligence uh, within the state but we also have access to people who are very well trained and experienced in dealing with global cyber security issues these aren't local, local actors these are global actors so we have access to staff who are coming out of these organizations and looking to do something different that does that mean they take a slight salary cut in some cases yes but it means we get access to truly state- of the art experience and, and expertise um, it's also worth keeping note that we've been doing this for 10 11 years mm-hmm. so we have some staff who've been around for a lot of that period who have had a huge amount of experience globally and, and nationally some of them have gone off the private sector and come back um, so we have we're very very lucky it's, it's been our saving grace for years we've had a small team we've had an extremely competent team um, and particularly in forensics and incident response which has been our focus for much of that time
1: mm. is there more that could be done in terms of resourcing funding expanding the team
2: always so our th- th- the budget last week week before um, signed off on an increase from 45 staff at year and this year to 62 next year so again, we're we're growing at pace, and that's about as mu- as rapid growth as you can sustain in reality. Um, and hopefully, next year we will grow again. So, the organisation is slated as to the as per the capacity review last year to grow to at least seventy by next year. I very much hope it'll be at least seventy; it will be more than that. Um, but thereafter, and we have a mid term review of the national cybersecurity strategy underway now. Thereafter, I think the organization will need to continue to grow, not forever, mm-hmm. but there is a critical mass that we need. We're getting there, we're getting close to it, but we need to be uh, s- essentially larger and more multifunctional to be able to specialize on individual tasks, particularly within the operations team, but also elsewhere in the organization. This, Like I said, this is forever. Mm-hmm. Cybersecurity isn't going to go away tomorrow. There will always be a need for an NCSC or an NCSC-like body. So the investment we're making now will pay dividends, you know, not just this year and next year, but into the future as well.
1: My final question is, we've spoken a lot there about the threats, the people behind them, the response. For individuals listening to this now who we've just scared the living daylights out of, is it an optimistic message in terms of Ireland's response to cybersecurity? Because in all reality, as nice as you are, we don't want to hear from you. We, we, we just want you guys to work in the shadows and stop everything. We don't want you to have to come out and explain things. Um, so how are we set to tackle the level of threat that Ireland currently faces?
2: It's amazing how many people don't want to see me. (laughs) Um, I suppose is the the message optimistic? I think the message is probably best described as realistic. Um, We're in a relatively lucky position because we're we're a well-developed wealthy country with resources to dedicate to this in the long term Mm -hmm. Um, and we have a strategic plan to deal with these issues as part of a global and European uh, response to these challenges. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy and it doesn't mean we're not going to have incidents. We are Um, and also the geopolitical environment is extremely dynamic. Um, the world has changed dramatically in the last eight or nine months so things could go badly wrong again and it's it's always a possibility we're just waiting on that one phone call I, in terms of an optimistic message the technology is getting better IT systems are getting more secure by design the bad guys are having to work harder for less and that's what we're trying to do we're trying to drive down their benefit from all of this their take um, in the long term this is working but there are always going to be people out there looking for new ways of making money. There's always going to be criminal actors, and they're always going to keep trying. So our job is to stay on that. Um, whether does that mean I can guarantee you won't speak to me again? I'm not sure. But we'll do our best.
1: Okay, well hopefully not. But thank you so much for your time. That was Richard Brown, Director of the National Cyber Security Centre, one of two bodies that tackle cybercrime here in Ireland. The analogy that was given to me was think of a cyber attack as a fire. The NCSC is the group that's called to tackle the fire. And then the Garda National Cybercrime Bureau comes in to investigate the cause.
0: Pat Ryan is my name. Uh, I'm the Detective Superintendent in charge of operations at the Garda National Cybercrime Bureau. We're responsible for the prevention, detection, investigation, operational support and prosecution of cybercrime. Word, that the law enforcement side uh, that investigates cybercrime incidents. In Ireland, we classify uh, cybercrime into two categories. Cyber enabled crime, so cyber enabled crime really is your traditional types of crimes such as fraud, theft, or illegal content, uh, which is facilitated through the use of, say, computers uh, and ICT equipment. Cyber dependent crime, then, is the other category, and that's very much focused on crimes that are specifically targeted against, say, computers and ICT equipment, and that would be the likes of your ransomware attacks, as I'm sure we've all heard that word in the last couple of years, DDoS attacks, and these are distributed denial of services. This is where attackers will basically flood uh, a network to try and disrupt the network of companies. We provide operational support to our um, members throughout the country. So where a cyber crime incident or cyber-enabled type incident occurs which may be complex, we would provide that operational support to the members then on the ground. The, the Garda National Cybercrime Bureau, we have significantly increased our resources over the last number of years in order to be able to ensure that Ngarrida Siakana has a, you know, the appropriate response to the ever-growing uh, challenges of cybercrime and I suppose this little, you know, uh, this Commissioner takes cybercrime very seriously and um, over the last two years we have seen a significant rise in our resources and that's not just staff but it's ICT and also uh, we've established a number of cyber satellite hubs throughout the country we have one in Galway Cork Mullingar and Wexford and we're hoping to open up another two now in the near future as well mm. and this is really to provide for a more localized response to cybercrime and to be able to provide that operational support to our divisions throughout the country.
1: We heard earlier in the show from Richard Brown of the National Cyber Security Centre about the work that they do in response to a major incident such as the HSE ransomware attack. How important is the collaboration between yourselves and the National Cyber Security Centre?
0: Collaboration is key and we need to work with all our stakeholders when it comes to the investigation of cybercrime. And I think it's, it's fully realised that when a cyber incident happens that you know, recovery is the priority at the end of the day as you just said when it comes to uh, an incident the ncc will will take the lead in the response uh, but when it comes to the investigation that's where we take over and we need to be able to work very closely and, and collaboratively uh, in order to ensure that you know that number one there's an appropriate response so that we can assist with recovery, but also then when it comes to the investigation, that we ensure that vital evidence isn't lost during that recovery stage.
1: One of the things that everyone will be aware of is that a lot of these types of attacks come from people not inside Ireland. How difficult is that from a policing point of view to try and identify and serve some form of repercussion in the instance of a cyber attack?
0: Yeah, well, just going back to my point that uh, cybercrime is what we would classify as very much a transnational type of crime. Therefore, you know, we work very closely with all stakeholders, but that also includes our law enforcement partners throughout the globe, the likes of Interpol, Europol. So, again, it's a coordinated effort when in the fight against cybercrime. And, and that also includes other stakeholders, such as industry, academia. So, we're all fighting the same for the same thing if that makes sense and at the end of the day it's about keeping people safe online but when something does go wrong we want to ensure that we have that outreach that we can establish the who what when and how basically mm-hmm. so that collaboration piece is really really important uh, for law enforcement uh, and that we work very closely with all our partners.
1: You mentioned there about the resources and um, that the Cybercrime Bureau have uh, have increased over the last number of years which is good is it adequate funding to try and maybe not even get ahead of these actors, but stay on par with them and identify new trends that are constantly emerging in this field? Uh,
0: well, I think from a law enforcement perspective, it's always challenging to try and stay one step ahead. Um, but again, as I said, we're, we're very lucky that we, we work very closely with the likes of uh, Europol, uh, their Cybercrime Centre, and you know, and Interpol to ensure that we are aware of what's actually happening in I suppose the the cybercrime landscape and and that's kind of really informs us on what we, you know, what skill sets we need, what tools we need, uh, what training we need. So again, you know, we work very closely with our partners in that regard to ensure that the officers of the Garda National Cybercrime Bureau have the, the right training for them to be able to do their job basically.
1: We've spoken a number of times here on News Talk about the instances of under-reporting cyber attacks. Earlier in the year I spoke to some smaller businesses, GPs and pharmacies in particular, who'd been targeted but didn't want to report it because of the shame or reputational damage that can come as a result of a data breach. I asked Detective Superintendent Pat Ryan if he understood and empathised with that way of thinking.
0: Yeah completely. Um, I think at the end of the day if a company is subjected to a ransomware attack it can have a devastating uh, impact on i suppose their their operations i think we, we only have to look back at, at the ransomware attacks against the hsc uh, to realize the impacts that that such you know an attack can actually have and I, I don't think there was anyone in the country that wasn't affected or didn't know someone that was affected by the hsc attacks but the reporting of of, of cyber is, you know is really really important and there's a number of reasons why I would, I would always ask that if someone is, is or a company is subjected to a cyber crime incident especially ransomware to report it is I suppose first and foremost a, again getting back to um, the staff at the Garden National Cybercrime Bureau again they're experts in their fields they have experience in dealing with these types of incidents and we're there to provide assist assistance guidance and assistance where we can um, it also, I suppose, informs us of what's actually happening here okay. within Ireland as well. You know, we're not the only law enforcement uh, or country where underreporting reporting is, is still an issue. But as I said, the Garda National Cybercrime Bureau, we're there to assist and advise where we can. We will fully investigate the incident. We're, we're going, we will work very closely with, you know, your IT security response team. That's, what, you know, that's what we're there for. We fully understand that recovery of operations is the priority, but really, it's for us to be able to understand as well, you know, what's happening within the cyber uh, crime landscape to be able to provide further, you know, guidance and advices to um, to the community and and to businesses that we're aware. Uh, that, you know, certain uh, cyber criminals or certain, um, I suppose, malware-type malicious software is being distributed. And it's really to be able to, also to be able to advise and inform communities and businesses of what's happening within Ireland.
1: Stepping back from ransomware for a moment, one thing that I know is rife in terms of... Younger people on cybersecurity is either the hacking or the remodelling of individual social media accounts. So on Instagram, for example, we've spoken to people whose Instagrams were hijacked by bad actors who were then either using images in, in inappropriate ways or sending out those you know cryptocurrency type messages. That can be a real invasion of privacy, particularly of a young individual. Have Guardi in stations around the country being trained in dealing with the first instance reporting of those types of invasions of privacy I suppose and attacks on accounts in order to fully understand reassure and investigate or does it all get kicked up to the cybercrime bureau
0: no it's um to answer your question I suppose that it's all about building the capacity uh, not just of the to national cybercrime bureau or the capacity and capabilities in the to national cybercrime bureau it's about building the organization's um, capacity uh, and capabilities to address cybercrime in all its forms. One thing that we have done over the last number of years as well is that we have trained um, frontline officers, uh, a number of them over 330 officers as digital evidence force responders and really that's to be able to provide that level of expertise within districts and divisions um, in the first instance on, on how to best practices around um, dealing with cybercrime incidents. On top of that, we also provide training to all officers in relation to cybercrime, different types of cybercrime that exist, and basically what to do in the event that some, a certain particular type of incident is reported to them. Our new recruits going through Templemore also receive cybercrime training and an awareness of again what's actually happening within Ireland, the types of crimes that are being reported and how to be able to deal with them. Again, I suppose the, the one key message that we always give out is that, you know, if something appears complex or whatever, we're always there at the Garda National Cybercrime Bureau and indeed even the, the new uh, satellite hub, hubs that we have throughout the country to provide that level of support and guidance uh, to the officers on the ground.
1: That was Detective Superintendent Pat Ryan explaining the work of the Garda National Cybercrime Bureau. Coming up on part two of the Cybersecurity Special.
2: The luring for financial gain and trying to build up that trust relationship, be it a romance fraud or, or a phishing attempt and, and asking somebody for money and then cyber uh, threat actors are so
0: sophisticated and so patient that they build up that profile or picture. They have their reconnaissance done beforehand, they know who they're talking to um, and it's
2: because that trust is there, they monetize the gain of it.